0: Hello and welcome to Maryland Chatters. I'm your host Hannah Gaskell. For many politicians, fundraising isn't their favorite part of the job, but it's necessary and during the COVID-19 pandemic, the issue has become more fraught than ever. Instead of crab feasts and soirees, many lawmakers this year turned to virtual events with pay-as-you-can price tags. Maryland Matters reporter Danielle Gaines caught up this week with one lawmaker who's making the most of this quarantine with a series of creative online fundraisers. We like to end our podcast on a bit of a lighter note, and it didn't take long for Maryland Matters editor Josh Kurtz to find a way to bring the Beatles into this mix. He chats with an Eastern Shore lawyer with a familiar name, and they both claim to be the state's biggest Beatles fan. First, Danielle's conversation with Delegate Leslie Lopez a Democrat representing Montgomery Village and other parts of central Montgomery County.
1: Hi, Delegate. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Danielle? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for
2: coming on. We appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about all the things I've been working on and all the fun events coming up. Um, So thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to tell you more.
1: Yeah well so we're here to talk about virtual fundraisers but um first you know how are you holding up more generally with with being at home and being you know very online all the time
2: yeah you know i've been working from home for the past 3 years so when all of this started i felt like a zoom pro and now there's been so many bells and whistles that have added they've added to the program that i'm constantly having to learn things so um, I feel like the playing field has really leveled because technology <laughs> has changed so quickly over the past few months but um, everyone's here is is happy and healthy and um, you know doing the best we can considering the, the complexity of the time
1: yeah um, but, so now that everyone is online um, did you worry about moving to virtual fundraisers as well? Like, were you worried about there being a draw to that sort of a thing?
2: You know, it really wasn't the virtual component I was worried about. I was just worried about how to fundraise in general during this time, because there's so many people that have been impacted by COVID. I didn't want to do anything that felt like it was in poor taste. So I tried to come up with things that, that, were realistic based on the mediums that were available and also things that would be a little bit lighter and that would be more joyful um, and where, um, you know, people who might not be politically interested would still have an interest in attending something. Um, And I think Zoom and the virtual space is really interesting because in some ways it's very impersonal to just talk to a screen, Mm
0: -hmm. but
2: ability to create really intimate environments with people and talk to people that you would never ever have the chance of meeting because it's so convenient to to talk to a computer uh, as opposed to like you know pay for someone to travel somewhere so i previously i had a uh, flower arranging workshop with a former floral designer at the white house Uh, my friend cameron who i've known for probably like 10 or 15 years really we met um, working together on Hispanic community outreach. She used to be the press secretary for the drug czar in the Obama White House. And I was working for the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and worked with her her boss a whole bunch. And so we just kind of got in the mix volunteering for things and she found such a, a passion and joy and creative outlet for Floral as I started hanging out in the White House Floral florist department and um, when her time with the administration end and then she just started up her own online e commerce flower business and now she's on her second one, and she does a really good job at um, being mindful of the communities that are impacted in the flower or floral industry Mm -hmm. and does her best to like empower the women that work in the organization. And she's just really cool. And I was like, okay, like if I'm going to partner with the business, she's the business to partner with. Um, And who doesn't want to learn some interesting skill right now and something Mm like a new hobby and um, you know, her, her um, uh, philosophies to make things like affordable and practical. So it really just, it felt like a natural connection there um and she's such a a pro at teaching people how to do it even my stuff didn't look horrible so
1: (laughs) (laughs) i sat in on this too and i also uh made a bouquet that didn't look horrible it was yeah no yours
2: was great (laughs)
1: um how do people respond when you send out like your first uh message about that fundraiser
2: i think anytime you like do something outside of the norm people have questions about it and might raise an eyebrow and in politics it's it's funny because there's a paradox you have to be really creative but creativity is not always understood or expected and so um you know, doing something kind of out of the box, like flower arranging, it's good that she had the connection of being an Obama White House person, because I think it gives her credibility. Um, And it also expands the reach of people you can target for that, like people might not be interested in me, but they might be interested in progressive politics, and floral design. So that -hmm. brings them into the into the network. And that gives me an opportunity to reach people that I wouldn't have a chance otherwise to to talk to.
0: Mm hmm
1: and um how how many people came out and what was the response after um the fundraiser for
2: the people who came so i think at the time we had 26 people participating and you know for a virtual fundraiser that i mean it feels about right for an in-person fundraiser sometimes you can have 10 people and you just try to make it make it work make the room feel like feel like it's full of people um And then, you know, sometimes as you, as you rise up the ranks, of course, there's more people that come to things, but it's always, you know, fundraising is a grind and it's a hustle. Mm -hmm. Um, The response I got afterwards was um, that people had a lot of fun Mm -hmm. and that it was like a hands-on creative event. And it was really nice to talk to people from across the country that were kind of sharing the same interests and the same like vulnerability of figuring out how to craft something um, so that was, yeah, that was the feedback I got. And that just, it made me happy and confirmed all the reasons why I wanted to do something kind of out of the box anyway.
1: Mm-hmm. And um, even when we weren't stuck online, um, you you have kind of a history of of kind of out of the box or creative fundraisers. Like, how did you get started um, with these ideas?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it comes from being poor. That's, that's my first. Um, So growing up, I, I always had to sell like candy or gift cards or just like coupon books all the time.
0: Yeah, I was
2: totally that kid as well. It, like you just if you want to do things and want to have a rich extracurricular life, you have to figure out how to pay for all those things. And my parents were not cutting checks. It, they had to like, you know, I had to learn how to budget for my my life and in like sixth grade. um, And so in some ways, it's always been kind of like natural for me to think in that way. Like, how do you get people to spend like five dollars on something? um. To participate in things, but for the political stuff you know i'm i'm really the only person in my family who's political my parents vote, but they're not I don't even think they're primary voters. Um, And so, for me to ask someone in my family or someone outside of my my political world for money feels very awkward to me. So Mm -hmm. I've always tried to come up with ways to engage people where you're really meeting them in their world and then inviting them based on like the values that align. Um, You know, they would they would never go to like a flower arranging thing for for someone on like the super conservative end. It's like it align my policies kind of align with their values, but it is something more fun to bring them in. And it's not um, overly political the way normal political fundraisers go. Right. Mm -hmm. so i started doing like the fun themed political fundraisers when i was a board member for the ywca usa so the national organization and there i was a board member um they had a bylaw that like i forget how what the percentage was but they'd have a certain number of people on their board under 35 and so i was working on capitol hill at the time I was making, I think $50,000 was my annual salary and my get or give for the board commitment was $10,000.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So that's creative, you know, like how do you come up with that? Like, and so I did all sorts of things based on the people in my network that, um, that I knew were available and who had an interest in um, like domestic violence work. And a lot of them happened to be Zumba teachers. So I had mm-hmm. a Zumbathon and raised a bunch of money for that and got a whole bunch of um, organizations to donate things like gift cards and stuff like that. Uh, and then based on the success of that, I did a world premiere of Scandal, the TV show. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's very yes. political. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it was like, this is perfect. Like, um, we had a whole bunch of um, things donated from local businesses that were, you know, trying to get that, that scandal audience market. Um, cause you know, she's the, she's Olivia Pope's known for being a fashionista and known for her wine and she's got a certain aesthetic. So, um, because it was interesting and fun, we got covered by the Washington post and that increased the interest of it. It actually mm-hmm. I, I, the, the, copy of it somewhere it's like a whole half page where it has um Washington like smiling and then all the trivia stuff that gave me the confidence to be like okay like this these are these pop culture things are you know bring people in so um I start I actually have done a lot of these (laughs) I think
0: about it Um, I kicked off
2: my um candidacy with a Star Wars themed fundraiser at Penn Social in DC because one of my really good friends who was so supportive of me even thinking about running um, was a huge Star Wars fan and he had just passed away from cancer so it kind of felt like a way to feel connected to Ed and Mm -hmm. to like you know tap into that supportive energy because the first time you even put a campaign committee together it's horribly intimidating and um, it was just nice to have that outpouring of support, Um, and then Gilmore Girls happened. Mm-hmm. Gil- <laughs> so
0: the yes. Gilmore
2: Girls. I was of talking
0: about this. So yes, that
2: was
1: hundreds a, of people,
2: right? Well, the first so the I've had two Gilmore Girls for NARAL because I was on the NARAL Maryland board for um, uh, several years, and I knew trivia was popular, and I knew that. Like I kept on seeing all these like BuzzFeed lists and like things on Twitter about Gilmore girls and my own social media, like people in my networks were blowing up about this. And I was like, oh, wow, the Gilmore girl fandom is really a thing with like younger millennial women who are, um, you know, kind of the, the left leaning political persuasion and grew up in this environment of like you know late 90s and early 2000s feminism where it's very like it's okay to be ambitious and curious and very like girl powery um and you know that's a that's a a generational thing that people are people connect to and so i was like you know what i'm just gonna try to do a trivia night we'll see how it goes i had a really good friend who is um She'll be hosting the next one, too. Her name is Jillian Urbino. She's a, a district karaoke person and is a phenomenal singer and huge Gilmore Girl fans. So she's like, oh, yeah, I'll be your MC." I reached out to my friend who had done all the comedy stuff for The Scandal Night, uh, my friend Leon. And he was like, oh, yeah, I know two Gilmore Girls super fans who are like women co- comedians that like would, would just love all of this. And so I had all of my questions together. got my Google slides together. We send out the act blue and it blew up. We had 400 plus, I think it was like 425 tickets that were sold. And that's, I remember that number because that's what the fire code for the building was. Like uh-huh. that's how many legally we could allow in there. And then there were like 100- a hundred.
1: And They had given you this space cause they were like, oh, it'll be a quiet night for us and no one's in. And you were yeah. thinking we'd get like, a couple dozen people or something?
2: Yeah, I was like, you know, I could, if I raised a thousand dollars off of this, that would be good enough for me, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, it was a Tuesday night and Penn Social, again, this is like the, the basement of this big, like multi-purpose kind of yeah. social club. And, um, they're like, yeah, we don't have any sports on that night. So if you just want to like do something, like, I don't know if you want to pay for everyone's thing or how you want to do that. And I was like, no, we'll just worry about that later. You know, thinking that we would have maybe a hundred people. Um, yeah, four (laughs) hundred and five and then like a hundred something on the wait list. And. Collectively, between the two Gilmore Girls nights that I've had, I've raised more than fourteen thousand dollars for NAIRAL, and it's only wow. like fifteen or twenty-five dollars ahead. So So um, this year, now that I know what I'm doing, uh, we have cast members that are joining us. Yes. So you're doing you're doing another virtual Gilmore Girls, and uh, when is it? It is the 29th of December okay. at 7 p.m. Eastern, and okay. I have three i won't i don't want to give away their names but there are three cast members that are named characters one of whom was in 20 plus episodes
1: oh okay well this is a trivia already i feel like yes. i should know the answer to this by the way oh, so no. i'm going to rack my
2: brain
0: there's so <laughs> many there's so many
2: characters it's just a perfect a perfect show for trivia um and uh, they'll be asking questions about themselves.
1: Oh, that's fun. Yeah. So are you a Gilmore Girls super fan or? I
2: was, <laughs> not, I was not as much of a fan when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, really, mostly because they just talk too fast. And I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot, you know. Um, it was a show on the CW network. So it's the same as like Dawson's Creek and and Buffy. And um, I... You know, because I had all those extracurriculars I had to sell candy for, I never really had a schedule growing up where it was like I could get into the same TV show and watch it every week the way other people had that kind of like adolescent fandom for things. Yeah. Well, well and no uh, TVR. I mean, times were so hard. It was. <laughs> you know, you go to the bathroom, you miss half the <laughs> line. You know, it's just different different era in the before times. <laughs> um, so I didn't really get into the show until... I had like a sinus infection and was home from work in like the early Netflix streaming days. Um, and I just sat down and watched all of it and was like, how come I've never, I never been into this before. Um, mm-hmm. And my husband who I was just engaged to at the time was like, Oh my God, I cannot, I cannot handle this. I cannot, <laughs> handle, like, all of the Gilmore girls all the time. But um, no, it's just, you know, it, it's interesting also because you look at the show from today's perspective and there's some parts of it that are problematic. Yeah. So I was thinking like, uh, like, is there really does this I mean, does this show really encapsulate all of my values and like how the show would be shot if it was today. Um, but I think for the era, it was innovative in some ways um like they have characters they're like um lane and her mother that show diversity within the asian community and they don't make that like the central part of their character like they're full well-developed characters um Mm -hmm. but there are parts of it that i'm like "Eh, you know like rory is she the villain here like is this whole like you look at once you become a grown-up you're like this is some real this is some real BS right here. Yeah. Um. Yeah.
1: There are some cringy moments watching it back now. But yeah. you watch so much, um, Friends, Seinfeld, like so many shows. Um when you watch them back now, you're like, ooh, oof, geez, yeah. wow.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> like that, that, was on that Monica thing in Friends is just so horrible. Like it really is, it's just awful. And I'm so glad that um People nowadays are growing up with um, at least, you know, we still we still have a long way to go, but at least there's an understanding of when things are cringy, with younger people, um, especially.
1: Yeah, do you do you have a favorite character from Gilmore Girls?
2: Oh my gosh, Um, I love Miss Patty in all of her unadulterated fabulousness. Like she just. Just owns all of her quirks and lives her best life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I like the weirdness of Quirk of Kirk, mm-hmm. and his entrepreneurial nature. I can I can relate to that. Um, one of my really good friends in college had this band called Leslie's New Job, because I every day I would come home and be like, I got a new job, because I would be like, you know selling shoes at Macy's or like I worked at a um, bathing suit store on the beach for a summer and then I ended that to go become a waitress at an Indian restaurant so it was like oh it was like non-stop jobs um, I'm still the same way I still always have more than one job um, so I like that part of of Kurt because it's just like if there's a need he will figure out a way to be you know the Terminex guy or the UPS guy or whatever
1: Yeah. Um, Well, so many of your, so many of what we talked about already are, like, television-themed. Have you done other TV show or movie-themed nights as well?
2: No, that's been about it. Um, Mm -hmm. I would have loved to have done a Harry Potter one. Mm -hmm. But, unfortunately, Penn Social had a contract with a trivia company that they, I mean, they made, like, probably like $20,000 off of a Harry Potter tri- trivia night. And so, Penn Social was like, you can't do Harry Potter because we, <laughs> we've got a pre-existing Harry Potter trivia. Contract. Someone's got a lock on the Harry Potter trivia. Yeah. And so, <laughs> um, you know, I found my niche
0: oh. and
2: um, it's helpful. Like I'll, I'm, I'm still doing like a traditional virtual fundraiser um, with, the, with like, you know in that like true political fundraiser sense, but this is a good way to connect to people who you know I might ask them to like door knock or to do phone calls or something like that too um mm-hmm. to just broaden your network of folks
1: mm-hmm. what do you think and i'm I'm sure a lot of your colleagues are talking about this and you've thought about it as well, just you know fundraising is a political reality, and what do you think about doing it right now, like during you know covid when You know, families are dealing with a lot, just time-wise, if they're lucky, and, you know, financially, if they have um, even more going on. So what is it like to try to fundraise right now?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, you have to be very, very mindful of the environment that we're operating in, where it's just not anyone's, contributing to political campaigns is usually not anyone's priority in life. Anyway, let alone during a time like this where there's just so many very pressing and immediate life and death concerns. Um, So for me, I think it's, I need to do what I feel comfortable with and charging people $15 and trying to put together something that's fun and that might, um, you know, give them a chance to connect with people at a time where we're all just isolated little islands. Um, You know, like, offering some type of opportunity like that and something that's um you know gives them a sense of community for an evening that is very low cost um or it gives them a chance to connect with friends across the country because uh, that's a good thing about virtual events is that you don't have to all be in the same room um, mm-hmm. to me that feels like it's it it helps my need of like just being able to raise enough money to pay for all my operational costs of the year like this is not a year where I'll I'll be breaking in a lot of money. I just need to be able to cover like my email and website hosting and um you know we'll probably do like a beginning of the year mailer or something like that. So it's really just about um you know covering those operational costs not mm-hmm. anything like forward looking um and then you know providing people something that feels like appropriate for the time.
1: Mm-hmm. Um- So I've noticed that a lot of your colleagues are doing interesting things. Um, There have been some, you know, virtual craft nights. I think someone did pumpkin carving and wine tasting and all sorts of things. Are you worried that people are gonna kind of uh, figure out your your methods here and out of the box and and take away?
2: I think there's room for everyone to be successful. You know. (laughs) I'm yeah, there's enough space for us all to be successful. So just, you know, I'm I'm available to help talk through like Q's and A's of how to administrate things if that makes, you know, how to do things on Zoom, if that makes things helpful. Um, I really don't know how many people to expect for this upcoming Gilmore Girls thing. Um one thing I haven't mentioned yet is that there's been this viral thread from a comedian and um television producer named Mike Dicenzo. That even like the big cast members have retweeted it, it's basically like how each character would respond during COVID. And oh,
0: this. yes, right?
2: Yeah, he's coming, he's coming. Oh. question. Yeah. I think he's he's one of the showrunners for the new save by the bell reboot.
1: Oh, interesting.
2: Yes. And so I just reached out and was like, Hey, fan to fan, you want to come and like ask some questions and do some trivia with us. He's like, "Yeah, that sounds amazing." So, um yeah, so that's happening. Um you just ha- and all of the cast members, I just reached out to them through DM on Instagram.
1: Oh, wow. Like
2: okay. just you know.
0: Maybe it, I'm not
1: being ambitious enough in life, I guess. <laughs> Maybe I could be friends with the Gilmore Girls cast too.
0: <laughs> you could be. Yes.
2: And one of them, we have a whole we have a whole conversation. We talk all the time now. It's really quite lovely. <laughs> awesome. Um Yeah, I mean, I, I refuse to let limitations of technology or not coming from like a robust political network stop me from doing the things that I feel like need to be done in my political work. So if I need to be creative and lean into the tools that I have that are free, like Instagram, or, um, you know, just trying to like, the hustle with the free stuff I have, like, then that's what I'm going to do. And so far it's working out, you know, like, I'm, I'm not going to be um, funding like a congressional campaign with this, but it is something nice to do and to connect with people during a time when we all feel very isolated.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us and for telling us about all of this. It's been fantastic. Sure. Thank you. All right. And as we like to do for every episode of Maryland Chatters, we're here for our regular conversation with Josh Kurtz, editor of Maryland Matters, about some of the biggest things going on in the Maryland political sphere right now. How are you, Josh?
3: Doing okay. It's been a pretty busy week, Danielle. So, uh, you know, we had we had a hard time eliminating topics to talk about. So, I guess that's a good thing.
1: Indeed. Um, well, the week started off on on a sad note. Um, we learned about the death of former Senator Sarbanes.
3: Yeah, um, he, he was eighty seven years old, and I think he'd been uh, ill for a little while, so it wasn't altogether surprising. But it was it was sad news. Um, he was really um, an old line politician, um, but in the best sense of the word. I mean, he was not. He, didn't, he was not an attention grabber. He was very cerebral and studious. He really didn't care who got the limelight or who got the credit. He was just interested in sort of sound progressive policy, and that's really what he devoted his life to. He served 30 years in the Senate and three terms in the House of Representatives and one term in the House of Delegates, and so he really uh, saw and did a lot.
1: Yeah, I, I learned something interesting just in, you know, researching his, his tenure and um, his political career. Um, you know, he and former Senator Barbara Mikulski, I think, are tied for the number of terms they were elected to. Right. Um, but because of the way leap years fell, she technically served one day longer in the U.S. Senate than he did.
3: That's right. That's right. She probably, yeah. and I'm sure at some point she let him know it too.
1: <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. There
1: were some uh, tributes to him in in the U.S. Capitol, is that right?
3: Yeah, a couple of nights ago, both on the House and Senate floor, yeah, several members uh, spoke about him. And uh, it was nice because they were very uh, personal stories about the ways he had touched them and worked with them. It wasn't just sort of great leader, great statesman. I mean, there was some real personal stuff there, which was nice.
1: Yeah. Also, early this week, we had a story um, from our reporter, uh, Bruce DePoy, about the procurement of South Korean test kits and a procurement officer's uh, allegations about how that process went. Can you fill us in about that and how the state has so far responded to those claims?
3: Yeah, um, this is kind of a multi-layered story. And part of the reason it's a multi-layered story is because of One of the characters involved, Dana Dembro, um, was a very high profile state legislator for Montgomery County for 16 years, very flamboyant, um, you know, in the midst of a bunch of policy and political fights during his time in the legislature. Then he lost his re election race in 2002 and kind of disappeared from public view at that point. But in fact, he spent the last 15 years. in some powerful but kind of obscure jobs in the state bureaucracy. He worked for the state's Board of Contract Appeals for about 10 years. And then for the last four or five years, he's been the uh, top procurement officer for the the state health department. Now, our listeners probably know that there's been a lot of controversy over some of the COVID-19 tests that Governor Hogan uh, secured from a South Korean company, basically uh, at least in their first iteration, they didn't work. Governor Hogan made, you know, announced the purchase of these tests with a lot of fanfare, but it, it, it turns out they didn't work. Dana Dembro was not directly involved in the purchase, but he sort of, it appears as if he may have become collateral damage, and he was fired from the agency in late November. He told our reporter, Bruce DePoit, that sometime in May, he got a kind of late night phone call saying you've got to authorize millions of dollars of payments to this Korean company right away. Dembro said he refused that this wasn't normal uh, procurement procedure and you know half a year later he gets fired. The state uh, health department is basically disputing his account saying he misunderstood, he's gotten some details wrong and that's kind of where it is but it was just kind of, I think, interesting for a lot of people who follow state government and have been following state politics for a while to suddenly see Dana Dembro uh, splashed in the headlines again after being out of the headlines for so long.
1: Yeah. And of course, these, as you said, there are numerous questions about these test kits that the legislature is still trying to learn more about. And there's a legislative audit underway as well that could potentially yield answers uh, in the future.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the health, you know, we've, we've gotten kind of from Governor Hogan's office himself and from the health department, uh, we've gotten sort of a a kind of a range of stories, but I don't think the legislature is happy with the answers at this point.
1: Yeah. So another source of uh, recent controversy that the legislature is digging into is the big payouts. Uh, at the Maryland Environmental Service to uh, Roy McGrath, who is the governor's former chief of staff, and um, to Matthew Schering, who is another top official in that agency. There was a hearing this week.
3: There was a hearing this week. Uh, Matthew Schering was basically compelled to testify, was subpoenaed to testify, and he showed up. There, This was a rare thing for a legislative hearing in Annapolis. Of course, it was virtual, but a rare thing. He was actually... Sworn in, he took an oath, um, which doesn't happen very often. And then he was asked a whole bunch of questions about um, personnel and 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 uh, hiring procedures at the Maryland uh, uh, Environmental Service. And there were at least 170 questions he he refused to answer. So some were sort of just pretty basic. You know, how does this work at the agency? How does that work? Others were a little more pointed about specific payments and stuff like that. But you know, it appears as if the uh, the legislature's fact-finding mission has uh, has a ways to go. And uh, now Roy McGrath himself is uh, is due to testify um, this coming week. You know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. If you if you read our story about this hearing. There is a graphic which which you put together, Danielle, basically comparing McGrath's and Sherring's payments uh, for reimbursements compared to the payments their predecessors received, and it's a it's it's a it's a mind blowing chart, and uh, you know, and their predecessors were there for a lot longer than they were, and yet McGrath and Sherring got much higher payments. Yeah, I
1: I know uh, McGrath was in the in the six digits during three years when one of his predecessors or neither cracked even 20,000 over the course of 11 years, I think. Right. So that's interesting stuff. Obviously, the legislature will continue to follow up on that one as well.
3: Right, right. I I do think though, I mean, you know, I, I, you know, you talk to political people, and, uh, you know, some, some people are saying, well, is this just a partisan witch hunt? Or, you know, what's this all about? Or was it really so bad? I actually think that chart really caught some people's attention. And, um, you know, it sort of brings home that we're talking about a lot of money here.
1: Yeah. And and that doesn't include, of course, the um, sovereigns payment, um, the expenses. Right, right. Uh, Well, elsewhere in the state this week, we had a changing of the guard. City of Baltimore has some new leadership.
3: right. This is the first time since 1987 that the city has simultaneously had a new mayor, a new city council president, and a new city comptroller. But they were all three uh, sworn in this week. The new mayor, Brandon Scott. So he's 36. Uh, You know, Nick Mosby is the city council president, and Bill Henry uh, is the new uh, comptroller, and also... The 14-member city council got sworn in with five new members. So, uh, yeah, there's this new leadership there. It's very interesting.
1: Is there anything that strikes you about the new leadership and um, seeing Nick Mosby and, and Brandon Scott there together leading the city?
3: Well, they're both pretty young. They've all, you know, and throw Bill Henry in too. They've all served together. I think it will be interesting to see how their agendas mesh, both, policy-wise. And, you know, these are two, uh, you know, Scott and Mosby are two pretty young and and ambitious guys. And it'll be sort of interesting to see how they reconcile all that too. Um, you know, how is, you know, Scott comes from the city council, but how does he work with the city council? How does he work with the city council that he once led, but is now under new leadership? I mean, and then you have sort of the perennial problems that are, that hit Baltimore, and then the problems brought on by the the pandemic and the devastated economy. So, I mean, it's a lot for all these guys to be dealing with, but you have sort of have the political intrigue mixed in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Josh. I appreciate your time as always, and uh, hopefully we'll do this again soon.
3: We will. Thanks, Danielle.
1: And now, the promised discussion between Josh and another Beatles mega-fan.
3: I'm here with Clay Mitchell, uh, an Eastern Shore attorney, civic activist, Scrapple fan, and all-around great guy. Um, If the name sounds familiar to you, it's because he's the son of the late Maryland House speaker, uh, Clay Mitchell, who was uh, also an Eastern Shoreman, civic activist, and all-around great guy. but the younger Clay Mitchell and I uh, bonded several years ago over our mutual love for the Beatles. And I like to think of him as the second biggest Beatles fan in the state of Maryland, but he could be the first. We'll let our, uh, we'll let our, readers, our listeners uh, decide. Why are we here discussing a band that broke up 50 years ago? Um, part of the reason is this is a consequential week in Beatles history, a sad week in Beatles history, On December 8th, 1980, John Lennon was shot to death in front of his New York City apartment building as he was coming home from the recording studio. Um, He was just 40 years old. Um, John would have turned 80 earlier this fall. Ringo Starr turned 80 in July. So it feels like a good time to talk a little with Clay about the Beatles. So Clay, thank you for being here.
4: I'm happy to be here.
3: Do you happen to recall when you first heard the Beatles, where you were and how old you were and
4: what you thought? Actually, yeah. Um when I was young, my parents had this Zenith Transoceanic Radio. It was it was it was huge. And uh I used to listen to WCAO, WYRE out of Annapolis, and uh occasionally we could pick up like WPGC. Uh, but I, I always had a radio around me. And from a young age, uh, you know, when they were still a group and popular, I remember just hearing the songs. Uh, but I really, my biggest impression was, I guess it was in the late, late sixties on like a one o'clock in the afternoon movie they did on UHF TV. If younger people probably don't know what that is, they did a hard day's night and, uh, man, that was like, that was a magical moment in my life. Uh, and, uh. From there, I just was like, I got to learn how to play guitar because that looks like a good gig. <laughs> so that, that was really my earliest memories of it. And in first grade, I had a yellow submarine lunchbox.
3: Oh, perfect. Yeah. I, bet, I, I bet you still wish you had it. It'd be worth a lot of oh, money.
4: money. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, so, um, so I mean, what did your, you know, you must have played the Beatles a lot at home and talked about the Beatles a lot. I mean, what did your, what did your parents think? What was, what was, you know, what was Speaker Mitchell's taste in music and did he, did he hate them or was he okay with them?
4: I think he was okay with them. It wasn't their cup of tea. They were more uh, at the time they, they liked, uh by that, that time they were into country music. Uh, but before that, they were, you know, into Elvis and uh, Jerry Lee Lewis and, and uh, really fifties type music. Uh, I remember uh, I think second grade, third grade, uh, this was post seeing A Hard Day's Night. I said, uh, I would really like to grow my hair. Yeah. That was sort of a thing like, well, let's see how it goes. And then, of course, you know, the first time it was like, you know, the bowl cut. Right. And, uh, you know, then it was a little longer, a little longer. Uh, and uh, they, they were okay with it. You know, they, they really, you know, indulged it because what's, what's the worst thing that can happen? You just, you just growing your hair and, uh, and uh, listening to music.
3: Yeah. I I remember. uh, Yeah. I always wanted to keep my hair long. And, you know, when I was six, seven, eight years old, haircuts were traumatic for that very reason. And and the reason I wanted to keep it long was because of the Beatles, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, Well, my parents told me that I watched the Ed Sullivan show with them when the Beatles were first on, but, I wasn't even two yet, so I don't have any memory of that. But I do remember having a few albums at a very young age and singing all their songs everywhere I went. And when my sister was born and I was three and a half years old, my my parents gave me the Beatles Help album as a consolation prize. Which oh, I think I think psych- psych- psychologists would have a field day with that little fact. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I guess I guess the question is, I mean you know, in our lifetimes, you know, back when we were kids through now, I mean, there's all kinds of great music and I love a bunch of music, but I mean, wh- what is it about the Beatles that makes us so crazy about them and makes so many people so crazy about them and really multi-generations crazy about them all these years and lately? It's,
4: it's, uh, it's something, because it, when you think back, uh, February ninth, 1964, when they were anticipated to be, and were on the Ed Sullivan Show, uh, remember it was only like 90 days before that president kennedy was shot and right. uh we went through that long uh, uh winter i was only one years old uh when kennedy was shot but uh you know it was that long cold winter and then all of a sudden you see these guys with the uh, funny accents come on television singing i want to hold your hand yeah 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 and all that and the, the world started to get brighter again um at the same time i think they were the first Superstars internationally that could uh, have been possible because we were just putting uh, satellites up into space um, yeah. and re- remember when you'd watch television at the bottom it was a big deal when it said live via satellite yeah and you know you don't even think about it now. so uh, you know there was Elvis and there was the Elvis movies, but it really did't have the impact because I don't think the electronic media had yet matured. Uh, when um, President Kennedy was shot that whole weekend or that whole week, wall to wall, 24 hours a day, the first time the news really carried an event like that. And I think that was a difference from before. So as, as the electronic media matured, it gave them a vehicle to be able to really reach out and touch people for the first time. And it was sort of a shared experience for everybody. And that's how I think they lived on. Plus. If you compare their music to anybody else, they were just talented beyond words.
3: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I agree. And I think that their their just sort of creative progression is, you know, like unprecedented since Mozart, basically. And, you know, I mean, if you think about it, you know, Rolling Stones, they did, you know, they had a hit with Satisfaction, great song, 55 years ago. And they've just been basically duplicating the same song over
4: and over again. I think they tried to do a Sgt. Pepper type album with uh, right. Her Majesty's Request. Yeah, yeah. So there's kind of there's a couple good moments yeah. on the album. Basically, it, it was pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, and you're right that the different periods of the Beatles, you know, the the, the mop top era, then there's sort of the mod era. Right. Uh, then with Sgt. Pepper, the psychedelic era. And then at the very, very, very end. Uh, with Abbey Road, I think they finally matured and and who knows what they could have been afterwards. But that was just a mature band uh, that was uh, that was just classic and timeless. Right. Right.
3: Um, are you are you willing to identify your favorite Beatles songs or albums or your favorite
4: Beatle for that matter? My favorite song is Strawberry Fields Forever. OK, because I think it's just uh, I think back at the time. Uh, what was available in the studio there weren't a whole lot of uh, uh electronic tools that you could use there's no uh, pro tools or whatever they use in the uh, uh video and audio studios now it was tape uh blocks on razor blades and and tape loops and when you think back uh, on that besides the fact i like the imagery in the song um it was sort of a, a moment before pepper came out where uh That and Penny Lane came out, uh, it it was sort of a moment where, wow, everything's starting to shift away from, you know, I love you type girl music, you know, Boy Loves Girl Music, to this is becoming a little bit more of an art. And that's why I think I like that song uh, so much. Yeah, it's one of my top 10 for sure. Yeah. as a favorite album I really like, the American version of Revolver. Yeah.
3: Well, you know what? I was gonna I was gonna I was gonna get to that because for our listeners, when when Clay and I were discussing this this uh podcast, I thought that was a very provocative statement. You told me that you liked the American versions of Rubber Soul and Revolver better than the right. British versions. And I guess I better offer a quick history lesson because in the US, Capitol Records tried to get as much money out of the Beatles as they could. So they chopped a few songs off of every Beatles album so they could create. More Beatles albums. So, the Rubber Soul album in the U.S. has a different song lineup than the British version, and the Revolver album in the U.S. had, I believe, three fewer John songs than the British version. So, so
4: talk, so talk about that. Well, I liked I liked the American version of Rubber Soul because uh, it was a really a big departure from what they did before. Like I said, you know, the boy loves girl music and, and that type of thing, where. I think the Bob Dylan influence uh, started to reach him. Uh, I think they started experimenting with marijuana for uh, sure at, at the time. And th- when The American album starts off uh, with I've just seen a face, yeah. Uh it, it sort of sets the tone for the record and the fact that it's mostly acoustic uh, I can I can picture Capitol Records at the time looking at them going like what are you all doing? You're messing with the formula, you know. Putting right. another, you know, hard days night album out, right. and I think that there was an artistic statement. That being said, that the foreign or uh English version of it starts off, I think, with drive my car. car. Yep, and that that's it's just a different flavor of an album. um I just, I'd like the I'd like the acoustic and the departure, and them making a statement like that. Um, I think that influenced bands like the birds and, and, uh, and, and those types, those types of bands. Um, it was a
3: cutting edge. Yeah. Well, it's, it's true. The American version does, you, you, you put it on, you think you're listening to a folk rock album and not a rock album and it is different, but, uh, I still, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm a <laughs> purist. So I, I mean, I've just seen the faces on the help album in Britain and, you know, right. it's fine. It's fine. there, so, you right, know, right. but, but, uh, I'm, you know, I'm a purist. I don't, don't like what Capitol Records did. But um, uh, one thing, uh, you know, one thing I will say, you mentioned Abbey Road and what a majestic album that is. Um, I, I've used that as, as, as like a team building tool on uh, one of my previous jobs because I worked one place where I was an editor and my reporters didn't really get along. And I basically gave them copies of Abbey Road and said, here's proof that you don't have to get along to do great work because the Beatles at that point were basically not speaking to each other except right. in the studio. And they made a, they made a fantastic album. So I just, I just always thought that was pretty cool that they could put their, their differences aside. And that's.
4: I always I loved you know, I, I the idea that, you know, everybody says, uh, uh, or said back in the seventies, you know, when, when are you going to get back together and have a reunion album? And I always thought, you know, I think Abbey road was the reunion album. Yeah. Because, you know, after that, uh, let it be, uh and, uh you know, George Martin really wasn't producing that record at the time. They, I think they brought in Phil Spector. And um, it, it just things just sort of fell apart. And, you know, they rang up George Martin and said, you know, we'd like to try this again. And George Martin's like, are, are you sure you want to do this? John's in on it and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. They apparently went into the album and uh, went to the studio and made the album and, and, uh, you know, what what a what a way to go out. Right. Absolutely. Yeah.
3: Um, well, um, because of where we are in the calendar, I've got to ask E. Clay if you remember where you were when you heard John Lennon had been killed.
4: Yeah. I I actually I uh we were watching Monday night football. Uh-huh. And you know and and you know, I missed actually missed the 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 moment Howard Cosell came on and said uh you know, John Lennon had been shot. I think it was in the other the room at the time and it was either my father or my brother yelled, you know, Clay, come in here, come in here. And uh, said, John Lennon's been shot. What? Uh, and, and, you know, the first few news reports were coming out and leaking. And immediately I went uh, down to uh, the basement in the house. I had a stereo down there and uh, I, I put in a cassette uh, and hit record. And I just went around the radio dial and I have that cassette somewhere. Uh, but, you know, I'd even go to like a country station, um, or um, uh, I think WLAF at the time was like a Muzak station, but everybody was playing Beatle music and everybody was talking about it. And um, I think for our generation, the late baby boomers, um, that was our Kennedy assassination moment where you just remember that. Absolutely. Yeah. And- getting up the next day, of course, you know, I had a beetle t-shirt, you know, and it was black and I wore it and, and, uh, it was, it was a sad, sad day.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I was struck by, I remember the next night was it occupied literally the first half of the CBS evening news with Walter Cronkite. And that, you know, was that something you'd expect for like a head of state or something like that?
4: Right. Right. It was, it was, you know, for, for whatever reason they were, more than just musicians, they were just cultural icons yeah uh, and with John, you think back even his solo career like working class hero and imagine uh they were not just songs they were really um moments in time that defined a time and more like anthems of of the moment in time and uh I think um everybody's touched by that um yeah. every labor day, every labor day on facebook I'll post working class hero and wow. uh, just uh you know, because I'm a Beatle maniac, and that's what we do. Yeah, I love that.
3: Wow. Um, well, have you ever uh, have you ever seen any of them in concert?
4: No. Uh, the closest I ever got, uh, I think I was 13 years old uh, with my brother and one of our best friends, Scott. My mother got tickets to go see Beatlemania at Merryweather Post. Oh yeah. When the when the guy that played Paul with him looked exactly like Paul, I forgot the actor's name. And uh, we saw them there, and that was just—you know—they went from the cavern days all the way to the end and the psychedelic show, and it was really—that was—that was something. And funny story, just set aside. My mother's sitting there with my brother, my you know, my friends, and I, and you know the the uh, Merryweather post goes dark, and all of a sudden you can smell something in the air burning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And my mother actually said, "Boys, I think somebody's clothes are on fire." And we're like. Where are you <laughs> Our mom
3: <laughs> wow did any, did any of you uh you know her into what was going
4: on oh no, yeah yeah we did we did okay. yeah and she couldn't believe that you know oh my gosh they're doing that in public yeah that's funny yeah so funny. That, that was the closest i ever got to a beetle a beetle yeah.
3: yeah well um the one uh The one nice thing about being, this has been a nostalgia trip, but the one nice thing about being a Beatle fan is, I find is that there always seem to be things to to be looking forward to, too. And um, when we were talking about this, you reminded me that um, um, at some point, maybe even, uh, you know, within the next year, they're going to do a re-release of the movie Let It Be. And that was supposedly, um, you know, that was kind of seen as like a documentary look at their breakup, but now apparently, and the Beatles were all pretty miserable and they wanted to sort of make, put out a movie that sort of showed them in a sense of dread and misery. But now um, all the footage has been put in the hands of the famed director, Peter Jackson, and he's apparently putting together a much more joyful movie. So, I mean, what's, what do you think about that?
4: I'm happy to see it. I remember The only time I saw that sort of in a theater setting, I saw the original "Let It Be" when I was in college at University of Maryland. I saw it, and you know everybody makes a big deal of the time when Paul's, you know, sort of saying or George is saying to Paul, you know, "I'll play it any way you want, or I won't play at all." And it it wasn't, you know, you see Twickenham Studio that they're in, and it is dreary, and you see Ringo sort of sitting behind the drums; he looks bored. And I and I would like to see if there's another happier version of that just for my own selfish purposes um, to, to see that because you know I do think I'll let it be you even look at the album cover you know it's you know black with a gray you know they're there and it's just sort of gray looking and just sad um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it um, just like when uh, I think it was the 30th anniversary of when Yellow Submarine came out mm-hmm. they added the section where Hey Bulldog right It was originally cut out. So, of course, I went to the movie theater and saw that. So, I'm glad that there still is stuff we could go and see, you know, purportedly for the first time. Yeah. Uh, So, uh, we had to get a whole bunch of people together and go see it. You're Co- you're on. You're on. <laughs> we'll drag
3: we'll drag uh, we'll drag my younger colleagues along. They'll yeah, love it.
4: yeah, <laughs> Hurry long haired guys. Yeah. Yeah. That's right.
3: Great. Right. Right. Well, um, you know, I feel like I could talk to you forever, but I but uh, about this, but I probably should spare our listeners. But are there sort of any you know kind of any last um, you know philosophical thoughts or anything you know we should be thinking about or you know just?
4: I I think uh, setting all rumors. To the side, Paul McCartney really is not dead.
3: Oh, thank you. Yes,
4: he, he's really not. No, we could go down a rabbit hole
3: explaining that. Let's leave them guessing what you're talking about. Right. They can Google it if they want, right? There you go.
4: There you go. Well, this, yeah. this
3: is enjoyable. Well, thank you so much uh, for your time, Clay. And uh, thanks to our uh, listeners for indulging us here. But, uh, you know, greatest band ever. What could you say? That's That's correct. A splendid time is guaranteed for all. Right on. Thank you.
1: Well, that's it for this episode of Maryland Chatters. Today's show was produced by myself, Danielle Gaines, and the Maryland Matters staff. You can read our nonprofit, nonpartisan journalism at MarylandMatters.org. And don't forget to sign up for our daily newsletter. Thank you again for joining us for some Chatter That Matters.